You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 77 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your host, Connor Johnnan, and I am joined by my co-host, as always, David Howe. Carlton is currently in Siberia hunting newly unextinct mammoths with Dr. Devin Pettigrew and could not join us today. So we'll hopefully he'll make it back for next recording. So in this episode, we are chatting with Dr. Robert Lassen, principal investigator for Amaterra Environmental. Robert received his PhD from the University of Tennessee, where he specialized in lithic technology and studied Clovis and Folsom cultures. He has worked at a multitude of sites throughout the Republic of Texas, including Galt and Topper in South Carolina. Robert is an expert flint napper and was also David's human origins TA at the University of Tennessee. So let's strike the platform on this core and get into some stone tools. How are you doing today, Robert? I'm doing great. It's an honor to be here and thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, thanks for coming on, dude. I think we were chatting the other day about some alleged things and that's, I shouldn't say it that way. <laughs> Talking about some <laughs> footprints. Yeah. That's the big news. Yeah. And I was like, hang on, I don't think I've had you on the show yet. So let's get you on. And then you immediately were like, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you were my, uh, my TA, my yeah. sophomore year of school. And I think you're definitely one of the major reasons I'm in this field. Cause I was like, this Man. guy is cool. And like, I like this subject. <laughs> Yeah, and I think I think you're the the one person from the suite of labs that I taught that year that you know I actually followed up on the career of, and you're you know still involved in in the biz and everything, and you know you're the, you're the success story. So it's like, all right, you know, I got through to one person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad someone did so. Yeah, but yeah, dude, we had was a human origin, so you would have the different skulls, and I remember picking one up. And like leaving a lab quiz. And I think there was a girl in the class I was trying to impress. So I like picked up the skull and I was like, looks like I've made some headway in my education. And then I just left and it wasn't great. But uh, <laughs> I think I remember that girl because you and her would stay behind and like ask me questions. But I don't remember her name because I don't I don't know if she's still in archaeology or not. <laughs> oh, I do. remember. Maybe it's a different girl. I don't know. I think it was. But I yeah. do remember her because she always asked like awesome questions, too. Mm-hmm. How was David as a student? Was he just a, a joy to be around or was he? He was a really good student. I, I feel like as he <laughs> as he went into archaeology further, he started more more embracing his own Neolithic past. But back then he was a regular nerdy kid just like I was. And, you know, I, I always appreciated that. I remember at, at some point there was a, a lab exercise that we had to do where we designed like some sort of species and explained their evolutionary adaptations. And his species was based on the Zora from Legend of Zelda. And I was like, dude, awesome. Uh, I forgot about that. Dude, I hung that on my fridge in my apartment with my roommates and they didn't appreciate it. Oh, dang. Well, I did. I forgot about that. Like Homo sapiens, Zora incest or something like that. But anyway, yeah. man, that was pretty cool. So I, I guess you're, you're from Texas. 
So basically, there's always that saying where it's like, I wasn't born in Texas, but I got here as soon as I could. Yeah, I got here as about like a six month old baby. My parents moved to Texas from Kentucky. I was born in Louisville, Kentucky. I got to try to pronounce that right. My parents are actually from New York and New Jersey, but they got transferred. My dad got transferred to Kentucky. They had me. Then they got transferred to Houston where I grew up. Cool. So were you exposed to archaeology, any sort of like science stuff as a as a young child sort of so basically uh i got into archaeology for uh you know two main reasons you know there's a lot of people from my generation who were particularly inspired by like indiana jones or something like that i was inspired by goonies i I wanted to be like mikey from goonies (laughs) but at the and at the same time uh when i was in uh second grade i was out at recess with a with a friend of mine and we saw some kids digging a hole next to the playground we were like we could dig a bigger hole than that they're like no you can't yeah we can so uh, my friend and i we found a good spot to dig a hole you know out past the playground and we were working with like sticks and then i started bringing spoons with my lunch specifically for digging and my friend lost interest after time but i dug on that hole for two years from second through fourth grade at that point the teachers decided it had gotten too big and they had it filled in but that was (laughs) what spurred my interest in archaeology by third grade one year into the hole digging project i came up with some small animal bones and i know uh podcasts are primarily audio media but I have one of those bones right here at my desk right now. Awesome. It's like a reminder of my inspiration of archaeology. <laughs> that was what made me realize it's like, wow, you don't have to go to Egypt to find cool stuff. It's all over. This is, you know, it was a big revelation. So that was what really got me into it. That's pretty cool, dude. I also dug a lot of holes as a kid and I would <laughs> wrap GI Joes in toilet paper to make them like mummies. And I barely. Oh, them. cool. <laughs> Seems to be a common theme, though. It, it's cool. Always asking people that. I'm trying to figure out. There was another guest who was in the. It was a Goonies inspiration. I can't remember who. Oh, someone nice. else. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 funny because we like and we joke about this almost every time. Is that you know you're a dinosaur kid, you're Indiana Jones, and now I think we have the second Goonies and or playground inspired archaeologist. Oh, okay, nice. <laughs> There's something in, in, in the initial like, you know, outline where it's like, are, were you were you a dinosaur kid or an astronaut kid or outer space kid? I was definitely more on the dinosaur end of things. I was scared of outer space because there's a movie yeah. called Space Camp where a bunch of kids accidentally launch themselves into space and almost asphyxiate themselves. And I was like, nope, never want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that would definitely traumatize me as a kid. I didn't see that. <laughs> Well, it just dawned on me. That's why Toy Story has like those two opposing characters. Oh, yeah. yeah. Huh. Wow. That <laughs> never dawned on me till right now. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. So you, that was early life. And then you, you went to school for it in, or did you go for something else? So I was into archaeology, uh, obviously in elementary school, just, you know, in an elementary school sort of way. When I was a teenager, my parents had moved out to uh, a different neighborhood. One that was more like, not necessarily country. I always like to call it the shrubberbs, where it was like, you know, as the suburbs expanded out into the country. (laughs) And it was a neighborhood that used to be a cotton plantation. 
And at the entrance of this plantation, there was what we called the gin house, where it was a, a house that held a cotton gin inside of it. And I thought it was really cool. Unfortunately, the neighborhood ultimately had it torn down because it was either do that or restore it. And they didn't want to spend the money to restore it. And it was becoming a liability because it was dilapidated. So I didn't like that. But I still wandered around the property and looked around. And eventually I found this small rise in the ground that had kind of a what looked like a circle of bricks just sticking out through the grass in the center. And I was like, that looks like a well. I'm going to dig in it. <laughs> and so uh, it, it indeed was. It was a cistern and it was filled up with trash from the early 20th century. So I was pulling out like Coke and Pepsi bottles with the labels painted on and like flower pots that I was like piecing back together and stuff. And this was when I was about 15 years old. Wow. And uh, that was when I started, like my mom helped me reach out to the Fort Bend County and Houston archaeological societies. And that was when I started volunteering on like weekend archaeology projects that in that local area. And that was what really spurred my interest in like actual archaeology. And it's great. I still associate with some of those HAS and Fort Bend County people to this day. It's really pretty neat. Now, at the time, my parents, uh, as, as they started seeing this becoming a budding career interest, my parents were like, you know, Robert, this is a nice hobby, but you don't want to do it for a career. You never make any money at it. <laughs> and, you know, I understand. But at the, at the same time, you know, I, I, couldn't, I eventually found out I couldn't do anything else and be happy. <laughs> yeah. I think you're one of the first guests who you, you see this actual excavation experience happened in like the 15, 16 year old. Yeah. I, I was, I was pretty lucky in that respect. Texas has a really good avocational archeological society and they have a lot of regional societies. One of the most active is the Houston area. Uh, and so I just happened to be in the right place to be able to do archeology span as a teenager and not have to go super out of my way for it. So mm. it was, it was pretty cool. So you're in Houston. Is Southwestern there? I'm not sure where. Southwestern is up in Georgetown, uh, north of Austin. It's kind of a suburb of Austin. Okay. So yeah, I went to I went to Southwestern without archaeology, particularly in my mind. You know, based on my my parents' advice, so, you know, I went there because I, I really like the school. It's a small liberal arts school. It was a sort of like education I was interested in, where you have like you know close interaction with like professors. It was the sort of college that kind of prepares you for grad school, basically, where it's like you know you're going to have that level of like interaction with professors. You're going to be expected to write big papers and give big presentations and stuff. So uh, that appealed to me, but I was an undecided major for a long time. And I ultimately decided on uh, being a sociology major and a history minor. Southwestern didn't have a formal anthropology and archaeology program. It was kind of wrapped up into sociology with archaeology being part of classics. So you could do like Greek and Roman archaeology, but that was mostly it unless you like kind of paved your own way. So uh, that's what I did. And, you know, it was still social sciences, still a similar sort of thing. And uh, after I graduated, I ended up in kind of uh, an office space sort of job. You know, I was I was scanning <laughs> shipping documents and it was really kind of soul crushing. So I decided, uh, you know what, I'm going to go back and do what I love. I, I remember having a phone conversation with my dad at that time, being like, what can I do to, to make sure I never have to do this sort of job again? And he said, become a professor. And I said, consider it done. <laughs> so from then on, I applied to graduate and didn't look back. <laughs> Did you ever have any, I guess, additional field opportunities at Southwestern to kind of do stuff? Or was that 
not really part of that program? It was it was part of the program, and I just narrowly missed out on it. So uh, I was I was taking classics classes. The only reason I was a history minor and not in uh, not specifically a classics minor is because I didn't want to have to learn Greek or Latin. I'm terrible with languages, but I did take a lot of classics classes. And at one point, I had an opportunity to go participate in excavation in Turkey, and I really wanted to do it. But and this is going to date me a little bit, but the the war in Kosovo in the late 90s was going on at that time. And that made a lot of people shy away from doing that excavation, even though it wasn't even in the same country. The war was not in Turkey. It was like a neighbor of Turkey. And so it, it made people wary. And the, the excavation that year got canceled. So sadly, I didn't get to do it. And one of the, one of the interesting things, and I don't know if I – can immediately pinpoint it. I hope I still have the article. But I remember while I was there, my mom sent me an article in the mail about the excavation at the Galt site. Because in like 1998 or so was when they found uh, the landowner at the site found the mammoth mandible with Clovis artifacts around it. And that was what spurred the the big excavations at Galt. And I remember seeing reading the article about that. And it's like, wow, that's right here. That's really neat. I'd like to do that sometime. It wasn't until way later that I actually got to do that, but yeah, it was it was pretty neat to see that article come out. <laughs> Clovis just sucks you in, dude. Like I, I wanted <laughs> yeah. to be. I, I was also a history minor, and I took sociology. I actually failed sociology because I didn't buy the textbook, and all the mm. test questions were on the textbook. I'd take it again. I did like it anyway. I I did the like early topper session with um, like the spring one they always do. That's not the Mm -hmm. summer one. And I had no idea what I'd be digging, but I was like, whoa, this is cool. Like I didn't realize they hunted mammoths and then like you just get sucked in. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Was A&M running Galt at that point? At that point, let's see. A&M showed up. Was it, I think A&M was there pretty early on, pretty shortly on after that. I think there was a UT field season first. And okay. then um, I can't remember how A&M and TAS, the Texas Archaeological Society, overlapped. But A&M was, was pretty close on, on the heels of, of the initial excavations, uh, at least for Area 8. Now, there was an initial, like, very brief excavation that took place in 1991 because that was when the first incised stones were found at Galt. And, and uh, Mike Collins and Tom Hester were curious about that. And they did a relatively small excavation back then. But that was when it was still a pay dig operation. The, you know, looting was very heavily going on there. So it was not a very large scale thing. In the late 90s was when it was uh, under new land ownership where they weren't doing any pay dig stuff and they were more amenable to having actual archaeological investigations. Did that kind of factor into your decision to go to A&M for grad school at all? Or is that kind of a unrelated? So- Funny story, I always tell people, and it's only kind of half joking, that a lot of the things I do in life, I do out of spite. So once I decided that I wanted to do what I love, I wanted to do archaeology, I didn't have uh, a specific focus. I was just like, I want to do archaeology. So I applied to the University of Texas, but I think my issue was that I was too, kind of too general, like in my personal statement. I didn't have much of a focus. And I kind of just... I kind of just assumed I would get in because I was a good student in undergrad. You know, it's like, hey, I was a good student. They'll let me in. 
They didn't. <laughs> I got rejected. So I'm like, fine, you're going to reject me? I'm going to your enemy. <laughs> but this time I'm going to do it right. I'm going to go there and I'm going to meet with the faculty. I'm going to you know, meet with them face to face. I'm going to shake hands, see what they're into, see if we get along. And, and I did. You know, I, I got along with the faculty there. And, and I think that and I think, you know, at the time they were taking a gamble on me. But you know, fortunately, it worked out and, and I ended up with a, with a good career out of it. I'd say so. Yeah. What's the beef between Wyoming and A&M? <laughs> so, I don't know. That I don't know. I could think of other beefs with Wyoming and other people and other beefs with A&M and other people, but I don't yeah. know specifically about those two. <laughs> you went and toured A&M, right, David? And kind of got that. I also was rejected from A&M for not, or I guess you were not, not, no, you weren't rejected from there, but my, my, we call it, my proposal wasn't, it was too all over the place. Dr. Graf said, so I was like, all right. It's just, I want to do dogs, <laughs> but out of there, but gotcha. I went to tour and like the grad students all took me out and they were like, you're from Wyoming. And I was like, yeah, and like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was, it was like this weird thing. And I was like, I don't know guys, but I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess A&M is, is more pro pre Clovis and Wyoming is highly skeptical of it, but I don't, I, I don't see probably, much more yeah. rivalry beyond that. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that note, we will end this segment. This is episode 77. We're talking with Dr. Robert Lassen, and we will catch you after you hear Chris Webster's beautiful voice. Welcome back to episode 77 of a Life in Runes podcast. We're here with Dr. Robert Lassen. Yep. One of my original, not like you wouldn't be Padawan. You'd be my Jedi Knight teacher, master. Yeah, I guess. Whatever I, it is. Well, I mean, I had a master's degree. I don't know if I was a member of the council, so it's hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. So our midichlorian counts were pretty high, so I think we're doing all right. Anyway, you uh, you had your master's. You want to talk about like what you did for that and. Yeah. Okay. So let's see. I think I mentioned, uh, you know, I went to A&M out of spite, but I met with the faculty and I got along with them. They took a chance on me. One of the things that they'd said was, you know, it's like you're, you're, they said I would be accepted on the condition that I do a field school. This was pretty short notice because I was applying in the spring of, of that year. So uh, I just went and did the, the TAS, the Texas Archaeological Society's field school. And, and basically, um, my advisor at the time, it was not necessarily for my thesis, but basically kind of my advising sort of sponsor professor who was like accept, accepting me into the program was Bruce Dixon. And uh, he said, you know, just do this. And you know, if it if you enjoy it, if it works out for you, then um, then you're in. Uh, and so I did the, the TAS field school. It's just eight days. It's not, you know, not a big grueling field school by any means. It was, it was funny because um, sometime after, after that field school, I was hanging out with my parents and they're like, you know, you're the happiest we've seen you in at least a year. So I was like, all right, you know, this is definitely for me. <laughs> so, uh, so they accepted me and uh, I went in without a very clear idea of what I wanted to do. But I noticed during Dr. Dixon's intro to, to archaeology class that I was uh, paying most attention. I was most interested when he was talking about stone tools. And I think part of this goes back to my experience with the uh, Houston Archaeological Society. Whenever we would dig in uh, prehistoric or pre-contact sites, they were telling me to bag anything that was a rock because this was the Houston area. There's not a lot of naturally occurring rock. And so I got used to looking for rocks and I got interested in the rocks and 
this translated into me getting interested in lithics while I was at Texas A&M. Nice. And uh, as it turned out, the person who was particularly specialized in, in lithics at the time at Texas A&M was Dr. Robson Bonickson, who was the uh, original head of the Center for the Study of the First Americans. And so I started meeting with him, you know, I, and I was like, hey, I would like you to be my thesis advisor. And he, he agreed to it. And uh, so I started doing work uh, with him in, in his lab at the CSFA. And that was how I got interested in all the Clovis and people in the Americas issues. And so it kind of went from there. My thesis topic was, it was kind of funny. Uh, Dr. Bonickson, he was, he, he was a highly intelligent and amazing man because not only was he a brilliant archaeologist, but he navigated these uh, you know, political, legal, social minefields. And, and he was a very interesting person to, 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 to be around and learn from. But also at the same time, he was also a very, very busy person. And so sometimes it was hard to sit down and have a conversation with him. So uh, eventually, you know, I, I managed to talk with him and be like, hey, what should I do for, for a thesis? And he was like, well, you know, you should study Clovis caches. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. I love Clovis caches. These are, and, uh, you know, Clovis caches are these kind of mysterious um, stockpiles, supply piles of, of tools from the Clovis period that have shown up uh, across North America, primarily, you know, in the, in the Western half of, of the nation. But I think we're finding hints of, of others, you know, out towards the East, maybe as far as Ohio, uh, depending on where you fall on that debate. But uh, anyways, I was like, okay, yeah, I would love to love to look at these. But he didn't give me any more specific guidance on that right away. So I was like, okay, I know what I have to do. I need to just write an outline uh, that involves everything I could possibly think of when it comes to analyzing Clovis caches. So I just threw the kitchen sink at this outline. And, and then uh, I brought it to Dr. Bonickson and it's like, hey, how about I write my thesis on this? And he just looks at it and goes, oh, that's way too much. Just focus on this. And he circles like one <laughs> section of it. And it's like, all right, that's all I needed. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> And yeah, that's funny. so funny story. I don't know if you all know or have uh, talked to uh, David Kilby. His PhD dissertation was on Clovis caches. And uh, shortly after I had uh, accepted this topic, I realized, uh, I, I think it was from some PBS show that he was on or something, and he was writing about Clovis caches. And I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> He's going to be way better than me. <laughs> so... Uh, what I what I realized was like this this actually lit a fire under me to get my thesis done as as quickly as I could. Uh, I graduated in about three years from A and M, three or three and a half years, which which was you know not not perfect for a master's, but it was good. Hey, you're talking to the, the right guys. <laughs> yeah, three. I'm three. At least three and a half. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But my, my goal was to graduate before Dr. Kilby finished his dissertation because I knew his would be way better than mine. And it was. Um, I finished mine in 2005. He finished his in 2008. And I was like, all right, at least I got mine out there before it got totally blown out of the water. <laughs> and yeah, and his dissertation, it, it's something I refer to, you know, to, to this day when I'm talking about caches, which interestingly enough, I have talked about recently. But we'll, we'll get to that in the later segment. Yeah, um, I guess... I'd like to explain what caches are because they're pretty fascinating, but I guess mm -hmm. we can get to that later. Bonickson, though, that, that name is really familiar. Doesn't he have something to do with like bone culture, like before stone tool culture or something like yes, that? Yes, that's one of the things he was very interested in was uh, uh, the flaked bone technology. The, the idea that green bones, bones that are fresh, are able to be flaked in the same sort of fashion as flint-napped stone tools. 
Uh, and he did a lot of experiments with that. He was also a, a fairly proficient flint napper. And uh, he did, I think, the second ever flint napping demonstration I ever saw was was from him. Huh. The very first was at the TAS field school. So I, I, I learned a lot. And actually, one of my uh, initial ideas for doing a master's thesis was on uh, – bone technology, but eventually it, it swapped over to Clovis Caches. I just had a lot more like existing research I could go off of. Yeah. Okay. What did you ultimately find as part of your research into these caches or what, what, what kind of uh, angle you, were you taking? To it's study been it? a while. Uh, basically, I was comparing and I, I selected primarily four caches. It was East Wenatchee, Anzic, Simon, and Fenn. Wenatchee is dope. Fenn's yeah, Wenatchee's awesome. really cool. <laughs> and that one we actually had casts of most of the artifacts for. And way later on, like a decade after I left or more, AM actually acquired the actual Fen cache. But no, this that was way after my time. I don't know if the Fen cache is still there, but it might have been on loan to them. That that was always that was always kind of cool to hear. So I was basically taking measurements and looking at artifact types and comparing like uh, comparing the measurements, comparing proportions of types. And I found that there, you know, there is there are some trends in that there are, I think, a couple of the caches. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I think it was like East Wenatchee and I want to say Fen seem to have this predisposition for having like really you know fairly large full-size pristine clovis points and then you know an assemblage of bifaces and stuff whereas other ones like simon and anzic had more of a reduction trajectory where you had like full-size clovis points and they had a kind of a trajectory of resharpening until you get smaller ones and they also have bifaces that could be reduced down into clovis points there's this whole like trajectory to them as far as I remember, and this was a good while ago, those were the some of the more interesting things I learned as I was studying these caches. Funny enough, in, in Kilby's later research, these, these were all the ones that got grouped together in what he calls uh, afterlife caches, which does not necessarily mean to imply that they were all burial offerings, although Anzic was a burial offering. Um, yeah. It's just these, the other ones, compared to the, the wider array of Clovis caches out there, these caches kind of match what you might expect to find in in burial assemblages if you go with ANZIC as kind of a template where you have like finished tools, you have unfinished tools, you have a variety of raw materials. Other Clovis caches, it'll focus on one tool type or one raw material and it'll look like more of like a storage stockpile. Like people like, you know, kind of had a, had a glut of raw materials. They went like to a source and they're like, all right, we roughed out all these bifaces. Let's go store them somewhere. We'll, come, we'll double back to it later. That's okay. what other caches look like. But these look more like votive offering type things. Doesn't mean that's necessarily what they are, but it's kind of one, one potential interpretation of them. Yeah. Okay. So that that is what like like you're coming back to the spot for the for those things. But for the audience listening, Robert just mentioned the like what the Wenatchee cache, like it it's W E N A T C H E E, and look up the Clovis point from there. It is the largest White Walker killing thing you've ever seen. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it the, has yeah, no the, reason the, being that big. <laughs> the 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 Rutz point R U T Z, if I remember right, that was found on like a bluff overlooking the rest of the cache. That's the yeah, uh, a gigantic obsidian Clovis point. The other yeah, ones are. The ones from yeah, the ones from the cache itself are almost as large, but they're made out of chalcedony. They're like a this yellowish, like honey colored chalcedony, and they're also okay. gorgeous. <laughs> That's so cool. And Dave's uh, peopling of the America class, we are peopling of the Americas. 
he like passed around all these cats or casts and i like held that thing and was like whoa <laughs> this yeah. is the coolest oh, thing yeah. i've ever seen <laughs> Uh, so funny story in the same class, you know, different year, I imagine, but in the same class. So there was there was two reports or rather, you know, small, almost coffee table books that came out on East Wenatchee. And they were both by uh, Michael Gramley, who I won't go into at this point. Interesting character if you want to read about him. But uh, he uh, wrote these books uh, just kind of summarizing the East Wenatchee cache. And uh, the second one is just uh, – it's from 2004, I think. It just has a couple extra articles and stuff in it. Same book, just with extra stuff. And uh, one of the extra things in the 2004 one is uh, a little blurb by uh, D.C. Waldorf explaining his impressions of, of the cache. And what he said was – that he he believes that the cache is made by three individuals, and that the most skilled of those individuals was left-handed. The the and I thought that was interesting because I'm left-handed. I you know I love I love hearing about how awesome left-handed people are, <laughs> but uh, I didn't understand how he rationalized this. Uh, he didn't explain it in this like short little like two-page blurb. So I, we were sitting there in Dave's People in the Americas kept class and he had the casts from this cash laid out and i was sitting there looking at them and i go i see it because <laughs> uh so you know clovis clovis points and tools are often you know one of the technological hallmarks of them is overshot flaking whereas you mm-hmm. strike it on one side and you knock off a flake with such precision that it goes all the way over to the opposite edge without destroying the tool it's it's a really impressive technique well if you were to imagine yourself as a flint napper and you were holding one of these points on your lap with the point facing outward and you were knocking off overshot flakes, then if with that particular positioning in mind, all those overshot flakes were coming from a left-handed side. And I was like, oh, that's what he sees. You know, there's some assumptions involved in that, but I get it. And I thought that was pretty neat. <laughs> huh. That's really interesting. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Like that handedness is a thing you can see in tools. Yeah. It, it's something you can infer, but it's, you know, one of those things where it's like, maybe, maybe not. There's, there's a particular Texas point that is one of my favorites in that regard. It's uh, a middle archaic point, about 5,000 or so years old called the Nolan point. And it doesn't look like anything super special. It has a straight base and kind of a leaf shaped blade and it's kind of boring looking. But what's uh, interesting about it is the stem on it is beveled. So the sides of the stem, the part that gets hafted into the, into the spear, the sides of it have this, a bit of a twist to them. They're just pressure flaked on one edge. And, and so it gives them this kind of almost corkscrew sort of shape. One out of 10 of Nolan points are beveled in the other direction. And that other direction is if the point end is facing away from you and you're pressure flaking it, that's the left-handed way. And I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure, I'm reasonably certain that's a sign of, you know, one out of 10, you know, prehistoric, 5,000-year-old Native Americans being left-handed. <laughs> that's cool. I mean, that probably, does that, does that check out for like modern statistics on left-handedness? Yeah, it, it, I think it's roughly it's roughly one in ten. Okay. I don't know what the exact statistics are. Did you continue studying stone tools? Yeah, I've I've always kind of I've always been with stone tools. That's always been kind of kind of my thing. Once I graduated from A and M, I worked uh, in CRM for two years for Hicks and Company here in Austin. And actually, a lot of the the people I work with now are like what we call alums of Hicks and Company. So it's like I work with a number of the same people that I used to work with back then. So that's pretty cool. 
but yeah, I've always been kind of kind of the the lithics guy, especially when it comes to like CRM stuff. When everybody mm-hmm. kind of has their own specialties and, and and we all play off of each other, then it's like yeah, it, it's kind of weird going back into this into this workforce where I'm the final say on on stone tool matters. Where it's like I'm used to like collaborating with with the group and being like, well, what do you think of this? And what do you think of this? And it's like, nope, my word is law. Well, all right. <laughs> <laughs> It is a weird day when people like defer to you for stuff and you're like, I, I think it's a biface. I don't, and you have to like, yeah. And be like, yeah. <laughs> so you, you continued on at university of Tennessee, right? That's correct. I met with my friend who, you know, uh, Ashley Smallwood at one point while I was working for Hicks and yeah. company. And, uh, we had a conversation where I was like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, going back to grad school for my PhD, but I'm not really sure uh, where to apply. I don't want to stay in Texas. Uh, I figured I, it would be a good idea for me professionally to like branch out, you know, find a find another state to do research in. And she recommended uh, University of Tennessee, particularly for me to uh, meet with Dave Anderson. She figured uh, he and I would get along really well, and she was absolutely right. So uh, that was my main motivation for looking into Tennessee. I know David, you know Dave Connor. Yeah. I don't know if you've met or uh, been associated with him. <laughs> But I Dave have. is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so professionally, he has his hands in, in a lot of forms of archaeology. But one of those is he's, he's interested in Paleo-Indian stuff. He, he's put together the Paleo-Indian Database of the Americas. In a more um, extracurricular sense, Dave is a huge uh, sci-fi fantasy nerd. His, yeah. his shelves in his house are just lined wall to wall all three floors of his house with books of sci-fi, fantasy, and archaeology. He also brews his own beer and mead. So many wonderful times have been had at Dave's house, just uh, perusing his collections and getting hammered. He and I got along great because, you know, that's, that's all the sort of stuff I'm into. So I could talk to him about anything. Uh, and, and he's just a wonderful guy. He's very supportive of his students. He's a very good professor. Yeah. Um, and he's just gen, a genuinely kind person. Just a, just a heads up. This is not the David Anderson who's been on the show twice. Oh. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of David Anderson. This is another person who we will have on. David G. Um, Anderson. <laughs> David G. Yeah. Anderson. I think the other one's David S. Anderson. Before we end the segment, I want Connor to tell his story. But before I forget, he's a huge nerd. And I'll never forget this. Like it was one of those parties he had at his house where you'd dig through his freezer for the Cadbury cream eggs. Yes. And he would get oh, it. He'd yeah. freeze them. He's like, oh, everyone just take one. <laughs> God. But uh, he has an original first edition Game of Thrones, like the first book. And I was just like, I know you don't have kids, but like, can you put me, can I get in your will to get this? And he was like, well, we'd go to Shane first. And I was like, so, so distraught that he just even thought to say that. I was like, oh no. <laughs> but then Connor in uh, San Francisco met Dave. Yeah, yeah. So we were, I think I met him maybe like in passing at the conference, said hi. And then we end up going to, I think, an Irish bar right outside of San Francisco. Cause yep. you go to archeology span conferences, you end up at bars. It's just, oh, absolutely. It's, just yeah. it's just what it is. And at some point the dance floor starts breaking out. Like people start dancing, getting, getting wild. <laughs> and I, and I look over and just see Dave just going at it and just had like the most original moves that he was doing. And he was just like absolutely killing it. And I was like, Oh my God, this is just the, 
the most beautiful nerdy professor just absolutely slaying yeah, it on the dance floor. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> with with his like I wouldn't say a boomer cell phone thing, but like the the cell phone attached to his hip and he was like dancing with us <laughs> and Stephanie Hacker and it was really funny. <laughs> anyway, yeah, on that note, let's uh let's go to the next session. Welcome back to episode seventy seven of a Life in Ruins podcast. We're chatting with Dr. Robert Lassen, and we wanted to start off this last segment to talk about Texas archaeology. And before we had started this recording, you had mentioned that Texas archaeology is really cool, and I think it's underappreciated in the world at large. And could you explain to our uh, listeners why Texas archaeology is so cool? Texas archaeology is this really cool crossroads, basically. It's a crossroad of environments, of geology, and of people. You know, throughout throughout the time that the uh, the American continents had people in them. And it's really interesting, like especially in, in central Texas, uh, where I live, you never had people really settling down. They were always hunter-gatherers up until the Europeans arrived, and then everybody became settled because... That's what we do. Before then, everybody in central Texas was hunter-gatherers, but they were kind of surrounded in all sides where it's like, you know, to the east, they had the Caddo. Uh, Up north, they had the Antelope Creek people. Uh, To the west, they had the Puebloans. To the south, there were the Mesoamericans. And then in the middle, it was just everybody kind of traveling across. It's a really overlooked sort of thing because in that respect, we don't have these uh, large scale permanent farming sites. We don't have monumental architecture. We don't have we don't have the stuff that really initially draws in archaeological interests. But what we do have is some really interesting environments that make it very appealing for hunter-gatherers to live. Particularly in, in central Texas, there is the, the hill country, which is the Edwards Plateau, which is a big limestone outcrop that's been uplifted. And to the east of it is the Blackland Prairie and then the Coastal Plain, which are these like kind of lower-lying prairies and grasslands. And so what you have are these uh, springs that have cut their way, springs and rivers and stuff that have cut their way through this hill country and are spilling out into this prairie. And uh, it provides this wonderful ecotone, which is basically along the Interstate 35 corridor where you have Dallas, Fort Worth, Waco, Austin, San Antonio. You have all these like modern civilizations going down this corridor. Well, that was where all the hunter-gatherers like to live too. And so you end up with these really, really cool sites. Galt is definitely one of them. And Friedkin, which is just 200 meters away, definitely one of them. You also have like the Applewhite Reservoir where you have the Richard Bean site, which is like meters and meters, like tens of meters of deposition with occupations going back 9,000 years. Very perfectly stratified. You have some amazing archaeology coming out of this. But they, they were hunter-gatherers. So you have what you end up with is you know, features, cooking features. You have hunting sites. You have uh, stone tool production sites. You have Sometimes you have caches. It's just not the the big monumental stuff that you that you know most people who are not used to archaeology immediately think of. It's not like pyramids, it's not pueblos, it's not mounds. So it gets neglected, and so I think it, it, it's really nice to to give it more attention. and And I'm glad that I feel like uh, in in recent years, particularly with you know sites like Galt and Friedkin, uh, it is getting more attention. 
so it's 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 a really neat area. And then also out west, out towards Big Bend, you have uh, the Lower Pecos region, which also gets a lot of international attention because it has this magnificent rock art. And oh, yeah. it's a rock art that has been to some extent, dare I say, deciphered because uh, the the researcher one of the researchers working out there uh, Carolyn Boyd has been looking at this stuff and uh, she uh, interacted with the Huichol people of northern Mexico and she saw that a lot of their their parades and ceremonies and stuff the outfits that they would wear and sort of the the stuff they would carry and stuff was matching what she was seeing in rock art panels and so she started asking them about it and what these parades and stuff mean and she was able to relate it back to the rock art and some of this rock art is two three four thousand years old and so it's 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 really neat how this is all playing out and so that's another really interesting aspect of Texas archaeology that's that's going on now. And of course, in, in East Texas, you have you have the Caddo and that relates back to all the Mississippian stuff that's going on uh, further to the east. And so that's it's it's an amazing region with a high variability of archaeology that goes on there, not to mention all the post contact stuff, Spanish colonial and onward. Yeah. I mean, it's just a huge state. So you got like tons of stuff there. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. The Edwards Plateau, doesn't that produce like a pretty important chert that you see in lots of places? Yep. It's it's a very widespread and uh, generally high quality chert that's uh, used extensively in Texas. And it's funny, as as I uh, sometimes get involved with projects that are outside the state, particularly uh, Oklahoma and Arkansas, I feel like I've been slightly hamstrung by looking at Edwards chert all the time. And it's like, man, I don't know any of these other charts. It's always just been Edwards all the time. <laughs> and so I have to, you know, keep up my education on raw materials as I go, because uh, I've been so spoiled so by dealing with Edwards chert so much. <laughs> One of the neat things, side note, about Edwards Chert is that it has a, a relatively consistent long wave ultraviolet fluorescence. It turns like a yellow orange color. And that's a very useful way to uh, identify it when you have a wide variety of raw materials in, in assemblage. When I'm at the at the lab at work, it's there's a lot of there's a lot of windows around. It's very hard to use an ultraviolet light, so I tend to take my lithic samples into the bathroom. You know, the only the only place in the lab that has like no windows, <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like, oh, there goes Robert into the bathroom with his rock. <laughs> <laughs> I I could be remembering incorrectly. Isn't it like it's kind of like a gray, generally gray. It, it varies. Uh, probably the most famous variety of Edwards chert is the Georgetown variety, which is a very like blue-gray sort of variety. Have, it's blue-gray and it's opaque, but it has a very glassy texture to it. Okay. And probably the next most famous variety, I would say, would be the, the root beer chert out of the Kerrville area, which is uh, – it looks like root beer. It's a brown, translucent color. So – and then there's everything in between. There's there's these kind of like opaque yellow varieties and there's like, you know, white and bluish varieties. And mm-hmm. So it, it depends on where you're looking at. I do know I like napping Georgetown, but it does – it steps pretty easily. Yeah, yeah, that's the same sort of issue I've had. It does it does step pretty easily, and uh, I know with the with the root beer stuff, you can end up, and to some extent with the Georgetown, but not as much. You'll end up with like these like gray, like grainy, like kind of inclusions in the middle of it, and those mm-hmm. can be pretty painful. But overall, it's really nice material. Yeah, it yeah, it's like I can't really describe it. It's I guess it has something to do with like it's a technically a 
well, it's not a flint. Like it's all flint, but yeah, there's something that it's like very similar to the stuff in Europe or something. Yeah, it is. That's what I've heard too. It's it resembles like the stuff from like Dover in England and stuff. Hmm. Now I've heard, and, and and it's funny. I've gotten in some really nerdy arguments about flint versus chert, where people will insist that flint is only stuff that comes from chalk context. But you read read material from like the old world literature. They call everything flint. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I had a conversation once with a friend of mine who basically explained that flint versus chert was more of like a a marketing scheme so basically <laughs> it was uh, flint nappers for gun flints in england versus france where uh they, they both wanted to sell gun flints to people and i can't remember which country said it because i guess it would apply either way but uh let, let's say you know england wanted to wanted to get the edge on france so you're like oh france France, that stuff that they have down there, that's just chirk. We have flint. And that's Ooh. where the whole distinction came from. And, and then people made geological excuses to try to account for that. But it's really just a marketing uh, scam. Interesting. <laughs> Didn't know that. That's, that's, yeah. that's my take on it. I honestly believe it's really the same thing. We just, you know, in the States, we settled for chirk uh, as, as the term. And then elsewhere, people have settled for flint as the term. It's all compressed silica. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wanted to, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, we briefly introduced the Galt site and on your CV, it says that you have worked there. So do you mind explaining, you know, what Galt is and what your experiences were at the site? Oh yeah. So Galt is, it's a really cool site. It is in central Texas. It's in uh, Bell County, very close to the Williamson County border. So it's about 50 miles north of Austin. And uh, it is a very extensively uh, occupied site where it has a, a continuous archaeological record that goes from the late prehistoric period, you know, like right about contact, like 500 years ago, all the way down to Clovis and beyond that. So it was a known archaeological site since like the 1920s. The very first archaeologist to work out there was J.E. Pierce, and that was in the, the late 20s. And he was interested in learning about middens because uh, in, in Texas, we have a lot of burned rock middens. And uh, I, I know they exist elsewhere as well. But you know, in Texas, they're a very, very prominent archaeological feature whenever you find archaic sites where people build these rock ovens and the rocks break down after multiple heating and cooling events. They toss them out, replace new rock slabs, toss them out, replace new, and it builds up this accumulation of rocks. Well, Galt has a very large one of those. So uh, J.E. Pierce was studying those. And, uh, you know, being the 1920s archaeologist that he was, he, he divided them into very clear strata, high, middle, and low. <laughs> and he did note that he believed that the low stratum consisted of highly mobile big game hunters. So that's pretty neat. But he didn't go on any more elaboration than that, as far as I know. Hmm. But for a long time afterwards, Galt was a pay dig site where people would pay a certain amount of money and dig up whatever, you know, quote unquote arrowheads they could find and keep them for themselves. There was a brief archaeological excavation out there in 1991 when Mike Collins and Tom Hester were interested in learning about these incised stones, these small limestone slabs that looked like they had like geometric artistic designs drawn on them that appeared to be associated with Clovis artifacts. And later on, that was verified through subsequent archaeological excavations. There's some articles out on that. 
And then in 1998, the landowner who put an end to the pay dig operations at Galt, he was curious about the archaeology out there. So he was he was doing some digging, maybe with a front end loader, try, <laughs> just just seeing what was what was what was down there on his property. And he ended up uh, running into a, a mammoth mandible. And there were some stone tools around with it. So he was like, well, this is this is bigger than me. I better call this in. So that was when the big full-scale excavations at Galt really started up, when uh, UT got involved, Texas A&M got involved, the Texas Archaeological Society was out there, Brigham Young University was out there, Mercyhurst was out there. There's you know, a bunch of people, a bunch of excavation pits. Um, and that was when research really went underway. And uh, all that stuff was happening just as I was applying to grad school for my master's degree. And I just missed out on it. After uh, two or three years of this heavy archaeological interest, the landowner decided he wanted to live in some peace and quiet and kicked all the archaeologists out. So I finished my master's without having any involvement in the Galt site. And I went and worked in uh, contract archaeology and CRM for a couple of years. And then right as I was applying to the University of Tennessee, Mike Collins negotiated with that landowner and managed to buy the back half of that landowner's property where the Galt site is located. And so Mike was gearing up to have new excavations out there. At the same time, Mike Waters was negotiating an adjacent property that became the Friedkin site, negotiating permission to work out there. So things were ramping back up. And uh, by the time that I was in Tennessee, uh, Mike Collins came and gave a series of, of guest lectures. And uh, he talked at the lithics class that I was in with Boyce Driscoll. He talked to the general group of grad students. And I think he gave a, a bigger public presentation as well. But at the end of the talk that he gave to the uh, students uh, for the lithics class, you know, I was sitting there in the front row and Mike knew me. You know, I'd done Texas archaeology and stuff. He'd seen me around. Mm-hmm. He was like, by the way, if anybody has any interest in a dissertation topic, I'd like to talk to somebody about doing some fulsome research at Galt. And I was like, yeah, that's me. I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was how I uh, found my way into to Folsom archaeology was by finally getting to go to research at the, the Galt site with, with Mike Collins. And he became a, a guest member, an extra committee member on my committee doing uh, Folsom research. And so this became my, to- uh, my dissertation topic, where I was looking at what's called the Folsom Midland problem. And this is something that archaeologists have wrestled with for decades. And it's one of those things, you know, the, the arguments in archaeology are so nasty because the stakes are so low. This is, <laughs> this is one, of those, one of those situations where people are arguing, it's like, so you have Folsom sites. Yeah, you know, and they, they, they occur right after Clovis. They're the, the immediate, like, descendants of Clovis technology. They were hunting bison antiquus, so uh, a bison that is, you know, one and a third times larger than modern bison, the, the Ice Age larger bison. And they were really uh, chasing these animals down and really, really into hunting them. You know, you think of Clovis as highly mobile. Folsom was really mobile. But they, were, they restricted themselves to the uh, geographic range of bison antiquus. So uh, one of the things that shows up, though, regularly in Folsom sites are uh, similar but not quite the same points called Midland points, where you have Folsom points that are fluted. They have the, the fluting groove running all the way up the length. But Midland points are not fluted at all. They are the same proportions, you know, width, length, thickness, all that. They're the, they, they would fit in the same halves as a Midland point. They're just not fluted. 
So are they the same people? Are they different people? Are they chronologically related? Are they, or is there a chronological distinction? Do they make them as materials were running low and this was a less risky flint napping uh, behavior? Uh, or was there the skill difference where only the most skilled people were able to flute the points and other people just chose not to? And so that was the stuff I was investigating in my dissertation. My favorite aspect of that research was, was the skill research. Not that any of the other aspects are invalid. I want to say that right now. I'm not trying to say, <laughs> oh, everybody else's stuff is, is BS. You know, it's not. It's highly valid. And you know, it's one of those situations where human behavior is complex and there's a lot of explanations for these things. But I did my best in my dissertation, in my favorite part of my dissertation, to uh, try to quantify flint napping skill by looking at width thickness ratios, you know, basically how thin a point was compared to its width, by looking at the number of flake scars compared to the number of quote unquote mistakes. And since Folsom points are fluted, I also looked at preforms, how many mistakes show up on preforms versus, you know, uh, what, what appear to be Midland preforms. And, and it seemed that consistently Folsom came out on top, Midland came out you know, roughly in the middle. And then on the, on the farther end of the spectrum, you have what was called pseudo fluted points where people would just trim up a flake to make it look like it was fluted, but it was really just the ventral surface of the flake. And those consistently had more mistakes than, than any of the other things. And uh, so that was that was pretty neat. I you know, I got I got uh, some articles published based on my dissertation, and that made me happy. Hmm. And my dissertation was not just on the Galt stuff. I started with the Galt stuff, and then I traveled up into uh, North Dakota and stopped at all sorts of repositories along the way, lots of private collections, and I looked at roughly. 2,000 or so points, preforms, and bifaces to try to figure out Folsom technology. And so, <laughs> and so that, was, that was my dissertation, and it was a really cool experience. And afterwards, once I got back and I graduated from Tennessee, I ended up working at the, the Galt lab and working at the Galt site, doing some of the excavations there. And that was my postdoc, and I was there for five years. And uh, that was that was also a really cool experience. I was there when the first pre-Clovis or older than Clovis or Galt assemblage, it's gone through many iterations of names, <laughs> but I was there when that stuff was first found. And the, in the, the deepest excavation of the Galt site, what we call Area 15, uh, we had the, the Clovis layer. And then uh, immediately below the Clovis layer, we had this very calcium carbonate laden, dense, like concrete like soil. Yeah. And I quoted uh, this soil in my in my level forms. The stratum is called, oh, dear God, no, please make it stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally traveling through concrete. Yeah, it's, it's bad. But you get through about, you know, you get through 10, 15 centimeters of that. And you start finding bifaces again. And it's like, oh, and I was there when, you know, it's always the person digging next to me. I was there when the person digging next to me found that first biface. Right. I remember it very specifically. It was May 4th, 2011. <laughs> <laughs> well, May the 4th be with you. Yeah, yeah. But actually, that was two years before, or maybe a year and a half before I finished my dissertation. So I was, you know, that was when I was still doing my research and I was volunteering, excavating out at the Galt site. But yeah, and that was, that kind of blew me away. That kind of blew everyone away because it wasn't like you had Clovis and then a few like little flakes trickling down. It was like you have Clovis, then things get really sparse, then blam, things are big again. 
So uh, it's it, it's it's really interesting stuff, and uh, I just hope there are uh, more and more sites that come out that verify what we've been finding there. Because I think you know the only way that we're going to really you know win over the holdouts is with uh, consistent you know replication of that sort of find. Mm-hmm. And so we'll we'll see how That's it exactly goes. What we but, talked about last week. Yeah. yeah, and and Galt is Galt is what convinced me for sure. But you know. As always, you know, as we say at the end of every conference presentation, more work needs to be done. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was really a joy to talk to you and to get to hear about Texas archaeology and hear how good of a student oh, David was. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's so much more I wish I could talk about. But yeah, I guess we're, we're running low on time. So uh, yeah, I guess one last thing we could would say, like, do you have any advice? Because you went from a PhD to a postdoc to now a job in CRM. Like what mm-hmm. would be your advice to like an undergrad trying to get into archaeology? Oh man, do a field school for sure. Okay. I've heard rumors that there are some, you know, professors being like, "Oh, you don't need to do that." Um if you if you want to uh, be taken seriously as an archaeologist, the first step is is do a field school. And that's not just so you look good on paper. That's so you know that that it's what you want to do because yeah. you know archaeology for for most people you know you could go into like you know curation you could go into museum studies side of things and that's valid as well but for the for the vast majority of archaeologists there's going to be some sweaty outdoor work and yeah. see and see if that works for you that's the the number one thing i would recommend okay awesome and before we end the show could you dish out a couple of like sources that you would recommend for anyone interested in like texas archaeology lithic technology etc yeah. Uh, so for Texas archaeology, there is uh, there is a book, The Prehistory of Texas. It's a uh, kind of a reference book, more or less. That's you know how I've always used it for when you want to understand extensively like the archaeology of a region of Texas or a time period within Texas. This is like kind of the go-to book for like kind of Paleo-Indian archaeology in general. Dave Meltzer's, uh, what is it called? I think it's called First Peoples in a New World or something along those lines. Yeah. That's a yeah. very a very readable kind of First Americans account. It's not going to have all the most like up to date, you know, like headline catching pre Clovis stuff because it's from about a decade ago. But it's it's a really good summary of the majority of Paleo Indian archaeology. And then for kind of uh, Texas in general, for a thing that's more like I guess approachable to a general audience, there is a really cool website called TexasBeyondHistory.net. And that is a website that has a sampling of major archaeological sites throughout Texas that you can explore and look at the results of, look at the excavation process. They have a lot of photos of both artifacts and excavations. You can learn about the people involved in those excavations. And it's a really, really neat, like, educational resource. Awesome. Well, yeah, I have to say this every week, but guys, make sure to rate and review the podcast. I really enjoyed this one. If you want to hear more about this kind of stuff, just let us know. Yeah. Choose an email, write it on Instagram. For sure. Yeah. And so we, we ask our all our guests this. If you could do it all over again, would you still end up digging and doing archaeology and living a life in ruins? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I don't know anything else I could do. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'd say that's how it goes. <laughs> awesome. We just interviewed Dr. Robert Lassen. Cool. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's been great. See you guys later. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. 
You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast. And you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. What's the difference between taxes and Texas? Uh oh. What is it? Taxes can keep your electrical grid operational. Oh, yeah. Yeah, fair. <laughs> Always in the thick of that snow snowpocalypse. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.